In our study last week in chapter 9, the end of chapter 9, the Apostle Paul likened the Christian walk or the life of a Christian person unto a race or a marathon. And he encouraged us and admonished us in that passage at the end of the chapter that we should run this race as though we want to win it. And we learned that the competition in the race is not other Christians that we're competing with trying to do better than them in some way, but rather our competition are those opposing forces that would seek to keep us away from God and away from his purpose for our lives, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he said that we should run as those that desire to obtain a prize or a reward or the best that we can get from our walk with him. And then he finished the chapter with a warning using himself as an example. And he says that this is the way I live my life, is that I run this race, I live my life before the Lord, putting as much of my body away and under as I possibly can so that I win the race and don't find myself disqualified. And he kind of finishes the chapter with a very sobering exhortation and sobering word to every one of us. As he tells us that there is the possibility that we could waste the life that God has given to us and the gifts that God has given to us. And that at the end of it all, we could stand before him and he could say, I saved you, I purchased you, I gifted you, but you wasted it. And there's nothing for you to show for it uh, now, not that maybe your salvation is gone, but your life, the opportunity that you have is wasted. Well, as we cross into chapter 10, the Apostle Paul now picks up on that thought. And you'll notice in verse one that the first word that's listed there is the word moreover. And when you see that word, it should indicate to you that what he's about to say He's adding on to or saying moreover what I just said, and now he's going to elaborate upon that warning by reaching into the Old Testament scriptures and drawing upon the example of God's people in the past in order to teach us about our present today. Now, the Bible says that God is unchanging. The word is, the fancy word for it, is that he is uh, what is it? Immutable. That God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever that he never changes. And the Bible tells us over and over again that God has wave. I counted 81 times and I searched it as many different, in as many different combinations of words as I could. And the Bible tells us that God has ways. It tells us to walk in his ways or the ways of the Lord. And 81 times, God exhorts us to learn of his ways or to walk in his ways or cling to his ways or his paths. And God certainly has ways. So if you put those two things together, that God has ways that he likes to do things and that he is unchanging, then it tells us that God has ways and that his ways are the same today as they were back then. Now, one of the ways of God that the Bible tells us about is actually defined for us in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 12. And it says this, that before destruction is a haughty spirit, 
and before honor is humility. That's one of God's ways. James, the New Testament apostle, says it this way. He says, humble yourself in the sight of God and he will lift you up in due time. That pride goes before a fall, but with the humble, there is honor. And so one of God's ways is that there is a humbling that leads to exaltation. So what does that look like in the life of God's people? Well, he saves us. We know that we're saved by grace. We can't save ourselves. It is completely a gift of God. It was provided by Jesus on the cross. The price was perfection, and none of us are perfect. So God sent his son to pay the price, which was perfection, and now he transfers to those that will call upon him a salvation that's freely given. We receive it, and he gives it. We're saved. It has nothing to do with us. It's all of faith. But after that salvation, God's way is that there is humiliation. There's a time where we, with the Lord, now we're his, we belong to him, we're his children. But he begins to teach us who we are, and that is not a pleasant experience to learn about yourself. And at the same time we're learning about ourselves, we're also learning about him. And as he's teaching us these things, simultaneously there's a humbling that takes place within our lives. We decrease and we become less and less and less because God is bringing what we think we are down to what we actually are. And it's a season of humiliation. It's a season of learning. It's a season of testing. It's a season of trial. And the reason for that is because God ultimately wants to bring us to a place of exaltation. Jesus said it like this. He said, I am come to give you life and that more abundantly. So at the end of it all, God's goal for every one of us is that we would live an abundant life, a fat life, a good life. That's what God wants for us. The life that God intended when he, when he first made man. That's the will of God for every one of us. But it comes, salvation, then being humbled and taught, and then being exalted as we learn to walk in the ways that God has laid out for us. And so we look in the scripture, and what do we see? We see Abraham, saved, called. But for 25 years, God taught him. God humbled him. God let him walk and trip over his own feet and make mistakes, and God forgave him and helped him, but taught him in that time and brought him up to a place where he lived an abundant life. He's the picture of stability and faith in the scripture. We see in the life of Joseph that's laid out for us in 12 chapters of the book of Genesis, a man saved by God, called with a purpose. But then for 13 years, he experiences the humiliation of God as God works in his life and teaches him and grows him so that he can be prepared and ready for the time when he is then exalted. You read the way that God exalted Joseph. And you look at Moses and how for 40 years he was trained in the ways of Egypt. He was strong. But then the calling of God came to bear in his life. And for the next 40 years, he was humbled. He spent it on the backside of the desert following after the sheep. But when God's process of teaching him was done, God sent him back to Egypt and he became one of the greatest men that ever lived. And it's the same story, whether it's those two or three guys or whether it's David, King David, and how God used him, or the prophets, or Peter, or Paul, or anyone since that time, God's way is salvation, then humiliation and testing, 
and then exaltation and blessing. That's always the way that God is because it's his way. And his ways don't change because God never changes. Now that's no different for the Corinthian Christians. And so as Paul now crosses over into chapter 10, building upon the premise that it's possible to be disqualified, he starts off by saying, moreover, brethren, on top of this, I would not have you to be ignorant or unmindful or forgetful. Don't forget, he says to the Corinthian Christians there. He says, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So what he does now is that he points back to the children of Israel, the group of people that were delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea by the hand of Moses. That's the example that he's giving. And so he draws upon a congregation of people because he's talking to a congregation of people. He's addressing Christians, and so he references the people of God from the Old Testament. And he says to them, I want you to consider them for a minute as we talk about the potential of being disqualified. He says, don't forget that all of them were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And the reference is to that time when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And the way that he led them is that in the hot desert sun, God provided a cloud that was just the right size to cast the perfect shadow over the congregation of Israel so that they would be protected from the heat of that desert sun in those hot days. And when the cloud would move, the people would move. And thus God was able to lead them by the fact that when the cloud would cover would move, they would move with it. And that's how they knew where God was leading them. And that cloud was with them, not just for a day or for a couple of days, but for the entire time of God's season of humiliation and testing upon them. So what he's saying is these people were not only delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea, but God was leading their lives with the cloud that he sent for them. And then he says in verse two, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So he compares the passage through the Red Sea to that of salvation that you and I experience. You and I are baptized. We go under the water, the signal of death, but we come up again, the symbol of new life in Christ. And so they also passed through the Red Sea, what was symbolic of death, what would have killed them. But they didn't die. They came out on the other side and they lived. And the old life was buried in it. Egypt, a picture of baptism and salvation. They were set free from Egypt. And then he goes on to say in verse 3 that they all did eat the same spiritual meat speaking of the manna or the bread that God miraculously rained down from heaven each night so that in the morning there was enough food to feed the entire congregation. And God did that for 40 years. They ate of that spiritual meat, he says, the food that God provided for them. And he says in verse four, they did all drink that same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. And of course, the reference to that is when the people were parched in the desert and they had no water and there was no spring. And they came to Moses and they said, we need water or we're going to die. And God spoke to Moses 
And he said, Moses, I want you to stand upon the rock before the people. And I'm going to stand in front of you. And I want you to picture that for just a moment. And then he said, I want you to smite or hit the rock with your staff and water will come out. Now, if Jesus or God is standing in front of Moses and Moses smites the rock, then who stands there being smitten? But God himself. And as soon as the, the rock was smitten, water gushed out of the rock, enough water to quench the thirst of the entire congregation. And then he says, he goes on to say that that rock followed them. Now, the physical rock did not grow legs and walk with them and follow them. But the spiritual rock did. And the spiritual rock represented Christ. Now, if it wasn't for this verse, we would probably not be able to put that picture together. But if you take and you tie this verse in 2 Corinthians to the story in Exodus, you recognize that that rock was a picture of Jesus, smitten. And in being smitten, he provided water for the need to quench man's thirst. And the great need of every man is to have the spiritual thirst inside of him quenched. And the only thing that can ever quench that thirst that's inside of man is what Jesus himself provides through his death upon the cross. You cannot satisfy a spiritual thirst with a physical something. And it's only Jesus that can satisfy the deepest need and longing that every man has. And that's what that picture typified. And so what Paul is bringing to their remembrance in these four examples, the cloud, the sea, the manna, and the water that comes forth from the rock, is that these Old Testament people, were led by God, delivered by God, nourished by God, and sustained by God. They were saved. It's a picture of the church in the New Testament. We are all of those things. We've been delivered from bondage in this world. We are led by God as he takes and directs our lives and uses them according to his purpose. We are sustained by him as he gives us living bread. Jesus said, I am the bread that comes down from God. And we're sustained by his water that satisfies. As he, Jesus said in John chapter 7, he said, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink, and out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And so he provides those things for us. And so Paul is making a comparison between the children of Israel and the church in Corinth and the church in Poughkeepsie and the Hudson Valley in the year 2016. We fall under the same banner as them. And if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his ways are the same yesterday, today, and forever, then God is going to deal with Corinthians and us the same way he dealt with his people in the Old Testament. Now, what does that have to do with being disqualified from the race? Notice what he says as he moves on in verse 5. He says, but with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now there's an understatement in that verse, and the understatement comes with the word many. He says, many of them, God was not well pleased. If you actually do a tally and find out how many there were, there was actually two that made it, Joshua and Caleb. <laughs> the rest of them were all overthrown in that day. So Paul is being somewhat gracious because the odds are slightly in the favor of the church that we're going to do a little bit better uh, than they did. But the warning stands nonetheless. He says, with many of them, God was not well pleased. And here's why. He says, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. 
And that is this, and listen and let this warning sober you greatly. Because what he's saying is that though they were saved, though they were protected, provided for, and nourished, they never entered into the fullness of the life that God intended them to have. And that is a sad reality that exists in every generation of God's people, is that it is possible for a person to be saved, led, sustained, but yet never enter into the fullness of the life that God has for that person. You can be disqualified, as Paul said at the end of chapter 9. He says, lest when I having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. You say, what does it mean to be disqualified? I don't think it means that you'll lose your salvation. You didn't earn your salvation. You can't preserve your salvation. That's something that's given to you as a gift. God's not going to take that back. That's not going to be an Indian gift. If you're truly saved, he saves you. But what it does mean is that it's possible for you to, like I said last week, waste your life. You could live your entire life and it could count for absolutely nothing. Fair, no fruit at all. Another thing that could happen to you is that you could be used by God for a season, but then find yourself put on the shelf because carnality has overtaken you and you're no longer useful for God. You've tarnished your witness, you've ruined your credibility, and God can no longer use your life. That happens. We see it happen throughout the Bible. We see it happen in the modern era, in the day that we live in. The sad thing is that often when that happens to a person, they don't even know it. They discover it long after it's already happened. But it's possible. The third way that a person can be disqualified, and it happens too, is that they can be taken home early. God might say, you know what? You're not going to be able to restore credibility, and so I'm just going to take you out of the race completely. Like the coach who from the sideline says, you're out of the game. And he takes them home. It happens from time to time. We see it in the Bible and we see it in real life. It's possible to be disqualified. So what Paul does now is he points to the Christians in Corinth and to us by the Spirit of God tonight. And he gives us five areas where they were tempted, where they succumbed to that temptation. And the result of that was that they were disqualified. And those same five things serve as warnings to us lest we should be disqualified also. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, now these things were our examples. So notice, he says right off the bat that those things are written down to be examples for us. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. The first area where the children of Israel fell, where the Apostle Paul also warns us about the potential of falling, is in this area of lusting after evil things. Now what that looked like in the life of the children of Israel is that after they were delivered from Egypt and they were brought into their desert wanderings or their season of trial and temptation, the food that they were given to eat and the water that they had to drink was not up to the par in standards of the amount or variations of food that they had there in Egypt. And they got tired of what God was providing for them in that time of testing and humiliation. And in their hearts, they lusted for the things that they had back in Egypt. We read in the book of Exodus that over and over again, they said, oh, that we had the flesh pots the access to the fish and to the meats that were there for us to eat in abundance in, in Egypt. Oh, that we had the leeks and the onions 
Now that can tell you how hungry they actually were. When you're craving leeks and onions and that's what you're dreaming about at night when you go to sleep. But that's humiliation. And sometimes God leads his people into a valley of humiliation for a sustained season at times for the sake of testing. You say, well, wait a minute. Meat, onions, leeks, those aren't necessarily evil things. They were. Do you know why? Because it was no longer the will of God for them to be eating the foods of Egypt while they were in that season of their life. And for you and I, the danger of lusting after evil things is that of looking back at our former life before we came to Jesus Christ and lusting after the things that satisfied us while we were in that life that no longer are the prescribed will of God for our life. What they did is that they interpreted their circumstances based upon the way they felt rather than on the reality of what things were. The reality was that God was with them. The reality was that God set them free from bondage and chains that they were asking him to set them free from because things were that bad. That was the reality of the situation. But the feeling that they were feeling was that there was leanness that God had taken them out, but now where was God? He pulled the rug out from under them and they couldn't feel his presence and they were hungry and thought that God had abandoned them now in the wilderness. And so they chose the way they felt and they wanted to walk after that rather than the reality that God was leading them to something greater and that they needed to endure through the season of humiliation and testing in order to get there. That was the essential. That's what God wanted for their life. I've heard it said that anyone who says that the former days were better than these, that is that the past was better than the present, that that person has a real good imagination and a real bad memory. And sometimes we can do that, can't we? We can say, oh, back in the day. And we remember the things about those days that were good or that were pleasurable, but what we forget is the bondage. We forget the lostness that we had before we knew Jesus Christ. We forget that no matter where we were and no matter how good things were for a moment, on the other side of that moment, there was a thousand things that were weighing on us that we couldn't find a landing place for and that were a constant source of anxiety and pain within our lives. And so we're never to look back at our former life and say, oh, that I could just do the things that I did then, that I could drink the things that I drank then, that I could find comfort and solace in the things that comforted and solaced me when I was there in Egypt. It's important that we keep our life before Christ in its proper context. And the proper context is that it was before Christ. We were lost. We were headed for hell. Now we're saved. We're headed for something greater, both in this earth and in the world that's to come. And therefore, our lives are best seated in his will. God, what do you want for my life? There's a song by the artist Sarah Groves that I love the lyrics to, and it's something that just stays with me, and it comes into my mind all the time. The name of the song is Painting Pictures of Egypt. And the lyrics go like this. She says, I've been painting pictures of Egypt, and I, sometimes I want to go back, she says. She says, because the future seems so hard, and I just want to go back. But then she says these profound words. Listen. She says, but the places I have been to, the past, cannot hold the things I've learned. And those doors were closed off to me while my back was turned. And there's some real truth in that. That's such a profound 
combination of words to think about that. Sometimes we can look back at our former life and say, man, in some ways I miss some of those things. But listen, the things that are now true in your life because you know God have grown you to a place where you would not fit in the context of that life again. And for you to look back on those days is to lust after evil things because they're fractional compared to what God has for you. Beware of the tendency, and it's a tendency that all of us can have, to look back and lust after things from our past. The second warning is given to us in verse 7, and it concerns idolatry. He says, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, that the people sat down to eat and to drink, and then they rose up to play. The reference is from Exodus chapter 32, and it took place while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the tablets of the law. And if you've seen any of the biblical narrative movies about that, you know, the Ten Commandments or, you know, the newer ones, then you're familiar with the scene. Hopefully you've all read it in the Bible. But for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses was up on the mountain and God was writing with his own finger what the law was upon those tablets. And while the people were down below in the valley waiting for Moses to return, they grew impatient. And they said, where is this Moses? As for this fellow Moses, we don't know what's become of him. And so they went to Moses' brother Aaron and they said, make us gods, idols, and take us back to Egypt and let them be our gods that lead us out of here. We don't know what's happened to this Moses. And so Aaron, not knowing what to do in a moment of weakness, he says to everyone there, give me all the gold that you've got, your earrings and your necklaces. And he formed this molten calf. And he said, these be thy gods, children of Israel, that led you forth out of Egypt. And then he did something so wicked. Thank God he was forgiven. Is that he ascribed the name Yahweh, or the Lord, Jehovah, to that calf. And he said, this is the Lord that led you up out of Egypt. And of course, Moses comes down the hill. God says, get down. These people have polluted themselves. Moses sees the calf. He grinds it to powder. He mixes it with water. He makes them drink it. Think about it. They had to drink their God. If you could drink your God, you got the wrong God. But the warning is concerning idolatry. What is it? They grew impatient and they found themselves in a position where because they had a whole lot of time and they had a whole lot of energy and they had absolutely no direction that this is what they did. Listen, they took things into their own hands. And idolatry in this context carries with it two implications or applications for us. Number one is that what we can do is that we can create a God after our own image. We come under the influence of our own devices and we create a God after our own image. Okay, well, I'm supposed to submit to him. I'm supposed to follow his ways. I'm supposed to do his will. But he's not moving fast enough for me. We don't know where he went. He set us free, but now he's gone and we're just sitting in this waiting period and we don't know what to do. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the best we can, but we're going to form our own way. We're going to forge our own God. We're going to call him God and we'll take what we like and we'll throw out what we don't. We'll obey some things, but not others. And we'll call it God and we'll say that our lives are being led by him. It's idolatry. The other way that idolatry manifests itself within our life is when we look to something other than God himself to provide anything at all that we might need. God said, my name is I am. Remember, Moses said, what's your name? And he said, my name is I am. Why did God call himself that? Because he is anything that we need. That's what he is. Not anything that we want. 
but he is everything that we need. That means that no matter what the need is that any of us have at any given time, God says, I'm the one that meets that need within your life. If you need comfort or solace or provision, if you need leading, if you need direction, if you need wisdom, whatever it is that you need within your life, I'm the one-stop place where you are to get that. And any time that we look to anything other than him to meet a need that we have, that's idolatry. Because he says, I am the Lord and I purchase you. Now, for some of us, that's convicting. For others, it's comforting. Because if that's true about our God, then what can't he do? And what is he unwilling to do? It's interesting to me that the idolatry in the children of Israel in this instance was provoked by impatience. You might be here tonight and you might be a newer Christian or God might have just recently gotten a hold of your life and let you know that there's a purpose for it and that he has a plan for it. And you might be in a season right now of your life very much like the children of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. You have a lot of time, a lot of free time. You have a lot of energy and you have very little direction. You don't know what to do with your life. And you can grow impatient in a situation like that. And the danger in a situation like that is to take things into your own hands and to say, well, I can't just sit here and wait on God any longer. I've got to just do something. Beware of that. He has a plan for your life. If the cloud doesn't move, don't move. Wait on God. He knows what he's doing within your life. So idolatry provoked by impatience. The third warning where, where some were disqualified is in verse 8. He says, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Fornication is just simply sexual sin. We talked about that uh, much in studies past. But the reference that he's talking about concerns uh, the, the, that strange prophet Balaam, who um, was hired by the king of Moab to cast a curse upon the children of Israel. It's recorded in the book of Numbers, chapters 24 and 25. And the king of Moab came and he, he hired this prophet Balaam and he said, curse these people because otherwise we can't stop them. And so Balaam didn't want to disobey God, but he really wanted the money that Balak was offering him. And so he had this argument with God and God finally said, okay, go with him but don't say one word more than what I tell you to say. And Balaam said, okay, you got it. And so he steps up on the mountain to proclaim a curse and only blessing comes out. He talks about how much God is favoring this people and how blessed they are and how nothing can stop them because God is with them. And Balak gets angry and he says, I didn't pay you to bless them. I paid you to curse them. And he said, I don't know what to tell you. This is what God told me. I can only say what God told me. And so Balak says, ah, forget you. You're fired. But Balaam wanted the money. So here's what Balaam did. And we learn this from the New Testament book of Jude. We learn it from Numbers chapter 31. Is that Balak said, look, I can't do anything but what God told me to. And I fear him enough that I won't do that. But I really want that money. So if you want these people to be cursed, here's what you do. Tell your young women to dress extremely provocatively. And tell them to intermingle amongst the men of the camp of Israel. I know the type of people that they are. They're men like anyone else. And if you send them in there to seduce them and they give themselves to the women of the Moabites and they worship their gods, then God will curse them because he's a jealous God. And Balak said, ah, and he paid Balaam the money because he knew that he had gotten it. That's why Balaam is cursed and condemned all the way throughout the Bible. 
because he taught Balak how to cast a stumbling block before God's people. So the Moabite women go into the camp, they stumble, and that day a plague broke forth among them. And 23,000 fell in one day. 24,000 fell total by the time the whole thing was over. But they disobeyed God. They gave themselves to fornication in this thing. Now, the thing that, the thing that this represents for you and I is that they basically thumbed their nose at the will of God even though they knew it. In the narrative, we're told that there was a man whose name was Zimri. He was an Israelite. And he took one of those Moabite whores whose name was Cosby. Apparently, she has descendants that still struggle with that even to this day. (laughs) But Zimri, the Israelite, took this Midianite woman and it says that they passed right in front of Moses and then they went into their tent and they they were flaunting the fact that they were going to do what they were going to do. And when the plague broke out, Phinehas, who was the, the high priest's son, the grandson of Aaron, he went in and he slew both of them. And that's what caused the plague to stop because Israel was purified from it that day. But here's what they were basically saying. They were Christians, listen, and they were saying, we don't care what God says in this area. It's not reasonable what he's asking of us. It's against what we want to do with our bodies. And so therefore, though we will follow the cloud, though we'll eat this manna, though we'll drink this water, and though we'll submit in whatever ways we want, we will not abstain from fornication because that is something we're not willing to do. And the result was disqualified. And the same thing holds true in the life of a Christian today when they say, I don't care what the will of God is in this area. I'm going to do what I want. And God can deal with it. That's fine. You have that freedom. He's not going to stop you from doing it. But beware that if you live that life, you can be disqualified in a number of different ways. It's one thing when the heathen do this that don't know God, but it's quite another altogether when a Christian does because you're sinning against greater light. You know that that's the will of God, but yet you're falling in that uh, anyways. And the whole thing. The fourth area where they fell uh, is, is in verse 9, and it tells us this. It says, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted him and were destroyed of serpents. And the reference, uh, to what he's talking about, took place in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And it tells us there that the people of Israel, that they spoke against God and against Moses. And their complaint in smearing God's reputation and Moses' leadership is that God hadn't provided the kind of food that they wanted there in the wilderness, nor sufficient water for what they felt that their need was. And their word to him is that we don't have food, we don't have water, and our soul loathes this worthless manna. That was the word that came out of their mouth. The bread that God rained down from heaven, they said our soul loathes it and it's worthless. And God heard it. God took it personally. And it says that God sent fiery serpents in amongst the people and they were bitten and many of them died because of the bite from those fiery serpents. Now, what's the problem in all of this? Number one is that if you are miraculously receiving bread from God every day, don't complain about it. I mean, where they were and what they were doing in the wilderness was not God's fault. It was their fault. 
God's grace was upon their life that they were set free from Egypt and that he would bring them into the promised land. It was their unbelief that had them still in the wilderness at a point when they should have long been in the promised land. It wasn't God's fault. It was their fault. And yet they complained against God in the whole thing. And God, what he did, he didn't remove the blessing of the manna because he's not going to contradict his faithfulness. But what he did is he showed them, look, you don't even realize what else I'm doing for you right now. And he just lifted the protection for just a moment. And those serpents just came right in and, and, and began to take down the people. They were complaining because they were unsatisfied with how God was providing and what God was providing for them in the season that they were in. How about you, Christian? How about me? The season that God has you in right now and the way that he's providing for you and what he's providing, are you content with it and thankful for the grace that is in that, that God is even providing for you at all? Or are you complaining against him and holding his reputation hostage, hoping that he'll do better for you? That's what they were doing. That's what it means that they tempted Christ. They said, God, if you don't do better for us than you're doing right now, then we're going to tell everyone that you're a tyrannical God and that you don't provide for your people. They were holding him hostage at his reputation. And God will not be tempted and God will not be mocked. And when we take the circumstances of our life that are what they are by grace and we complain against them and we hold God hostage to it for something else, it grieves his Holy Spirit. And it's a risk of disqualification. In the New Testament, Jesus said these words. It's in John chapter 6, verses 32 through 35. I'm not going to read it, but he calls himself, listen, the bread of God that came down from heaven. Jesus is the bread of God that comes down from heaven. Now connect it for just a moment. Because what that means is this, is that if you complain about what God is providing in your life miraculously, you are complaining against Christ. Because what God has in your life right now is his will for your life right now. And it's grace. And it's equivalent of you just saying, stupid salvation. This is a stupid life. That's the equivalent of what it is. God is doing something. He's leading you somewhere. There's a purpose for what he's doing within your life right now. Embrace it. Give thanks for it. Say, God, teach me what you want to teach me in this season and bring me through it that I might know the abundant life that you have for me. Don't speak foolishly. And then number five is given to us in verse 10. It says, neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. To murmur just means to complain. And they did this throughout. They complained every turn of the way. They complained against the manna, the water, the lack of water, the type of water, the place where they were, the food, everything that they had. They just complained and complained and complained. And many of them fell in the wilderness because of it. The specific reference is in Numbers chapter 10 when it talks about the destroyer. And it says that they wanted meat. They were just hungry. They wanted meat. They were tired of the bread again. And so they begged for meat. And Moses, God said to Moses, he said, tell the people to go into the camp. They want meat. I'm going to give them meat till it comes out their ears. And it says that God sent an east wind and he rained quails over the land. They just flew in to where they could just take tennis rackets and whop, knock them out of the sky. And they did it. Knee deep, they were in quails. And it says that the people flew upon it and they didn't take the time to prepare it rightly. And they ate it raw with the blood. They were so filled with lust after that 
that they ate it with the blood and a plague broke out among them. And again, many of them were destroyed. We've already applied it. It's murmuring. It's complaining. It's not waiting upon God in the whole thing. And so what does he say now to us concerning this? Verse 11. He says, now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. What he's warning us about is this. He says, their mistake is that they forgot God's ways. They forgot that that's the way God deals. That's what he did with Abraham. It's what he did with Joseph. It's what he did with Moses. It's what he does. It's his way. Salvation, then teaching, humbling, learning, growing, walking in his ways, repentance and faith, all of those things. And then as we walk with him, there's exaltation and blessing. It's his way. And he's saying they forgot it. And he's warning us and saying, look at what has happened to them and take heed to that warning in your own life as well. Don't take the grace for granted. He says it's written for our admonition. It's a warning to us upon whom the ends of the world are come. Knowing this, listen, that it is possible even today for you and I to succumb and to be disqualified, that we could have a wasted life. And then he gives this application concerning it in verse 12. He says, wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed, be careful that you don't become disqualified, lest he fall. When you think that you just stand, well, Jesus died for me. I'm in. I'm saved by grace through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. No condemnation. I'm free by grace. I have liberty in Christ. If those are the words constantly out of our mouth and we stand arrogantly, confidently thinking that no matter what we do in this world isn't going to make one bit of difference in our eternity, he's saying you're a fool. Let him that stands take heed lest he fall. For there has no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. Notice that. He's saying that every one of us is tempted and that there's not one of us that is tempted in a way that hasn't already been defeated by someone else or experienced by someone else. You say, well, my temptation's different. If you knew the level of the temptation that I have, you wouldn't be saying that. God doesn't even know the level of temptation. Oh, no? Because what Paul just did is he gave us five areas that you can put a banner over them and every temptation that ever was falls somewhere under one of those banners. Everyone faces temptation. I might not have the same temptation as you, but I have temptation. And my temptation is not easy for me to stand up or, uh, under as yours is not easy to stand up under for you. Because we're being tempted. We're being tested. It's part of God's process in our lives. He's doing something. And he's aware of it. He says, no temptation has taken you except for that which is common to man. He says, but two things are true in the context of that temptation. Every temptation has two things true about it. Number one, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able. That's number one. You can circle that in your Bible. That's a promise that is absolutely certain. Is that God will not allow the, the strength of the temptation to exceed your ability to endure it. In fact, God purposefully will bring you to the pinnacle of where you can no longer stand and then back it off again. You say, well, why in the world would he do that? The same reason a good coach drives his athletes to the very edge of puking or death and then brings them back. And the reason that they do that is because they want them to be able to endure the hardest of situations 
that they might ever face when they're in the actual context. And God as a father is committed to strengthening us spiritually to the point where we can stand. He's making us strong. How does he make us strong? He allows difficulty to come in the form of temptation. And then he strengthens us in that temptation, works with our resolve and wisdom, and we grow and we're strong and able to bear up under the temptation. But God will not allow temptation to come into our lives that's too great for us. The other thing that's true about temptation, he says onward, he says, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear. God is faithful that in every temptation that you and I would face, where we face a situation where we have the potential of being disqualified, that he will make a way for us to be set free from that temptation. Now, one uh, scholar said that that way of escape is not a, a trap door, but rather it's a ladder. It's not a river that we jump into, but rather it's a mountain pass. And here's the idea, is that it's not necessarily going to be easy for you to take that way out. It's a way out, but it's not like God's just going to intervene in the middle of your temptation and just shut the temptation off and be like, okay, this is your way of, of escape. So you're watching TV and temptation comes and God just automatically shuts the power off on the television or your appetite is out of control and you go to open the refrigerator door and it's just locked and you can't open it. It's not, it's not working. You say, oh God, thank you. You've given me a way out. The, the door is locked. Or you take the lighter and the lighter doesn't work and you're going, oh, oh, that's the way out, isn't it? That's it. You've made a way. It doesn't work like that. Or you're about to throw the, the punch and your hand cramps up and you, you can't do it. You can't you know, express anger in the way that you want. That's not the idea. He doesn't make you not be able to sin. He gives you the opportunity not to. And do you know what? Do you know what that opportunity is? Don't do it. The opportunity is that he has given you the power to say no, to look at something that is tempting you and to not do it. That's the way of escape, oftentimes as it is, as he goes on to say. Notice that word at the end of verse 13. You see that word? It says bear it. You know what bear means? It means that there's a load, that there's a weight, that it's not necessarily going to be easy for us to fight against it. But notice what he says. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Do you see that word flee that he uses right there? This is the door. The door is flee. The door is get away from the thing that is tempting you because what is at risk right now is your eternal reward. And will you esteem your eternal reward to be of greater value than what it is you're being tempted by at that point? And if you have to, flee. Now, this word flee is used four times in the New Testament in the context of temptation. And it's always used when teaching about temptation. Flee youthful lusts, Paul wrote to Timothy. Flee these things, talking about covetousness and money love, Paul wrote in another place. Flee fornication, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And here he says, flee idolatry. You know why that word is used specifically? Because that word points back to an Old Testament story that gives to us the perfect picture of defeating temptation. You know what it is? It's Joseph. 17-year-old young man, torn away from his home, in exile, no parents, no pastor, no Bible, no accountability, given great responsibility because he was gifted. 
And a beautiful married woman comes on to Joseph and tempts him with the most powerful temptation that a 17-year-old young man could have possibly thrown at him. And day by day, as she pressed upon him to get her to lie with him, it came to the point where the only way that he could resist her was to flee. And he fled. And he did it at great expense, almost cost him his life, but it cost him a prison sentence, and it cost him a lot of shame, and it cost him a lot of reproach, but he fled. I want you to think about something for just a minute in the light of that young man and that temptation. Do you realize this? Think about it. If Joseph, in Genesis chapter 39, had given in to that temptation that day, the book of Genesis would be 10 chapters shorter than it is. There would be 40 chapters in the book of Genesis and not 50. And what God did with that young man's life, one of the most extraordinary lives that has ever been lived, never would have happened. Not one word of it if he had fallen under the temptation that was put before him at that moment of his life. Now think about that in the context of your life as you sit here tonight. What do you want your legacy and your future to testify about who you were and what God did with you and through you? It makes a difference what we do with the temptations that come our way. And if we're mindful of that, then when the temptation comes, and notice that he's talking about things that are gray area, then it's in our best interest to flee from it and to not entertain things that are going to bring us into bondage, reproach, and ultimately disqualification. Another thing I find interesting about the list of things that Paul has laid out for us to take heed to is that three out of the five of these disqualifications started with simple food cravings. Think about it. Just simple food cravings. Not able to control just the simple appetites, the God-given appetites that God has given us in our mind. Nothing wrong with that. But what they led to and that they were, they were unable to control that thing was that it was ultimate disqualification. It's been well said that if a man can gain mastery over his stomach or if he can bring his stomach under the spirit's subjection, then everything else is easy. And there's truth in that. God has given us the ability to train against temptation every moment of our lives in the simple appetites that he's given to us. Flee. Run. It's not worth it. How many chapters do you want your life to play out? And what would you have God say about you in the end? Well done, good and faithful servant, or disqualified? Great opportunity. Incredible talent. A unique personality, unlike any, anyone else that, that, that lived. A design and a gifting, a place within my kingdom, in my creation that no one else could fill and occupy, but it was wasted needlessly because of unbridled lusts after things that don't profit. May God, the Holy Spirit, give us a vision of eternity, of our lives presently, and may he show us the value of what it is to esteem his calling and his name worthy that our lives should be surrendered to him completely. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we uh,
pause here in chapter 10. And we consider the great weight of reward and the great potential of loss that's before each one of us that sit here in this room tonight. And Lord, I know it's your desire that we not just be called out of the world so that we can be overthrown in the wilderness. We believe tonight, Lord Jesus, that you died on the cross to take away all of our sins. Not just the ones that we committed in the past, but the ones that are upon us even right now. And we thank you that tonight, Lord, we sit before a God who is the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. And every single one of us that's sitting in this room tonight, Lord, we have done things worthy of that great disqualification. But we sit here tonight, Lord, not in despair of what's been, but in hope that if we're still alive and still on the planet right now, that there is a grace for us. And that you're not finished with us yet. And so I pray for myself and for each person that's here tonight. That you would wash us in the blood of Jesus Christ right now. That like Paul we could forget the things which are behind and press towards the mark of the high calling of God that's in Christ. That you would call us off the sidelines. And you would put us back in the narrow path that leads to life. And that the narrative of our life wouldn't be completed now. But God, that you would use us in the time that we have left. So teach us to walk in your ways. And I pray for anyone that's here tonight that's in a valley of humiliation, a time of preparation and testing and waiting, that, Lord, their eyes would be set upon you, that your cloud wouldn't fail to lead, that your pillar of fire by night would be their guide, that your manna would more than satisfy because of the love that comes with it, and that, Jesus, you would be our all in all. Lord, for the person that sits here tonight and feels condemned as though it's too late for them, may the fact that they have a pulse be a testament to the fact that you're not finished yet. For you said, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And would you stir in them, Lord, faith to believe that you're for them and not against them and that you have called them with a future and a hope so fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit tonight that we might walk in your ways and that we might hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Let's stand together.